Next week is the 50th anniversary of US President Richard Nixon closing the gold window and taking the United States effectively off the Bretton Woods monetary order, the death of the Bretton Woods system. Or was it? In this episode, we're gonna tell you that actually the Bretton Woods monetary order died many years earlier. In 1971, it was just when people noticed we're going to talk about that with Jeff Snyder, the head of global research at Alhambra Partners. But first, ladies and gentlemen, if this show had a sponsor, I could say that today's episode is sponsored by Blockworks, which will be hosting a conference in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire from the 11th through the 13th of August, centered on the question, what is the future of money? The ladies will be well represented with presenters such as Amy Oldenburg, Lynn Alden, Danielle DiMartino Booth, Dr. Pippa Mongren, Stephanie Miller, and Casey Wagner. Gentlemen will be presenting as well, including Nick Carter, Dimitri Kofinas, Vikraman Sharamani, Jeff Booth, and Dan Oliver. There is also a third contingent of presenters, a contingent that would be more at home in the cantina on Mos Eisley. Luke Groman, Stephen Van Meter, Brent Johnson, and Jeffrey P. Snyder. Jeff, how happy do you think your hosts are going to be when you tell them that their 50th anniversary of the death of Bretton Woods is actually off by a decade and a half? I don't know if they'll be so much as surprised as they will be shocked. I mean, it's sort of, uh, it's, it's very much accepted. And as you said, in 50 years have gone by now, half a century, it's pretty well, I doubt anybody would think any, anything else simply because it's what we've been told. It's what we tell ourselves. It's the very neat and tidy end to something that most people don't understand anyway. So it's all a bunch of fuzziness. Why not August of 1971? It sounds good to me. We're going to be talking about an essay that you wrote at Real Clear Markets that the audience can read along and study at their own leisure. And it was posted on the 23rd of July. And the title is No Matter What They Say, The Future is an inflationary. And you, that's what you say, Jeff. You say everyone thought that Bretton Woods ended on August 1971, but you bring up the word uh, November 1961 and something called the London Gold Pool. Jeff, let me draw attention to that very first word, London. London. Not an accident. Not an accident. It, that place comes up over and over in our stories. London Gold Pool. Well, let's let's step back first. I mean, before we, right. we talk about the London Gold Pool, let's talk about Bretton Woods itself. I mean, I don't, you know, there's, as I said, it's, it's a very fuzzy concept to some, most people. First of all, we're talking about what seems like ancient history. And second of all, gold, what the hell, gold, what does that have to do with, you know, it's not a true gold standard. It wasn't like people were using gold as money in individual economies because FDR took us off the real gold standard in 1933. So, it, it wasn't a gold standard. It was a gold exchange standard, which was quite different. And really what a gold exchange standard was, was essentially we used paper national currencies backed by gold. And what does it mean to be backed by gold? It means that when you got a Federal Reserve note, these dollar bills as we call them, it said on there it was essentially gave you the right to walk into a Federal Reserve bank or the Treasury and say, 
I don't want this worthless piece of paper. I want the gold content that, that the paper gives me the rights to claim. Convertibility. Well, since the American citizens were no longer able to hold gold, that meant only foreigners could do this. So the U.S. dollar was still convertible into gold, but only foreign officials could do that. And they only wanted to do that in, in certain situations where U.S. dollars tended to build up in their holdings. So if, the, say, the Swiss National Bank found itself holding a lot of U.S. dollars, they didn't want to hold a lot of U.S. paper dollars. They would claim they would they would convert some of those paper dollars into U.S. reserves, U.S. reserves of gold. They would claim and convert U.S. gold reserves. So that created a natural tendency between the needs of an international reserve currency, the requirements that the reserve currency must meet, and that limit, limited ability of the national reserves to back that currency. This is what Robert Triffin called his dilemma or paradox, which is simply that in a globalizing system, which requires enough uh, reserve currency to be available readily across a whole wide part of the world, in fact, much of the world, that would always cause this natural tendency or even contradiction because so much currency, national currency, paper currency outside the United States would inevitably lead to convertibility, uh, convertibility, which would then drain domestic reserves, thereby causing all sorts of problems. Because eventually, if left unchecked, U.S. reserves would be exhausted or at least, you know, they would be drained so much that confidence in the system would just completely break down. And so his paradox was that there's no way to reconcile these two functions. How do you have a national reserve back essentially a global currency where you need more and more currency outside of that national reserves ability to, to back that entire system. And so that's what we mean by the Bretton Woods standard was that national currency tied or international currency, excuse me, reserve currency tied to U.S. national reserve, gold reserves. Actually, it was a co-reserve with the British pound, but, you know, by the early, the late 40s, early 50s, everybody knew the pound wasn't going to cut it. When was the uh, Suez crisis, Jeff? 56. Incredible. What Long. timing? Because uh, there's some thought that it was in 1955 that uh, Midland Bank may have been the first kind of to step into creating euro dollars, as we, we call them. And then 56 accelerated it. And interestingly, in your note, you're saying that in your essay, 58, 59, that there is a drain on... Serious gold drain. Yeah, and yeah. so much so that there's a discrepancy, I believe, in the London market. So there's the official price, and then there was some market price in London that was picking up that gold was... Uh, you needed more dollars than the official exchange rate, meaning the dollar, the dollar was, being was devaluing devalued. relative to gold, right? Which is the entire problem Bretton Woods was supposed to prevent... That's the right. idea is if you have a fixed exchange rate, thereby and, and free convertibility, at least among official pockets, this kind of a situation would never happen. And that it would elegantly balance, all, you know, inevitable imbalance, trade imbalances, merchandise flows, financial flows. These would be elegantly balanced by that fixed exchange rate of policy. But as Robert Triffin wisely observed, there's always that natural tendency. You cannot have the needs of a reserve currency be met by a limited supply of national reserves. It's just those two things are set in opposition, and it didn't end in August of 1971. As we're talking about, we could see the creaks and the cracks and 
could hear things start to, to start to go wrong and you see warning signs in the middle 50s and late 50s. So already there were things that were that were, you know, this contradiction. I mean, Robert Triffin's I think he uh, he, uh, he wrote about his paradox in the late 50s, or early 60s. It wasn't in the 1970s. So this was not something that was just a, was not something that was a surprise to those who were paying attention. And if I remember correctly, Paul Ising wrote his book in the early 60s, but in it he was talking about how in the late 50s, London bankers were telling him to hush, hush and keep it on the download that, uh, that they were creating money U.S. dollars. There's some sort of U.S. dollar business taking place in London and officials in America were quite, oh, we're skipping ahead. The London Gold Pool, basically <laughs> countries got together and said, listen, this market exchange rate is telling us that there's a disconnect. We're not keeping to our fixed exchange rate. So we, gigantic countries with huge gold reserves, are going to work together to peg the dollar and gold to what we, we say it is. The You're right. And that's, Emil, that, to sorry to interrupt, but that, that's no, sort no. of what Robert Triffin was talking about. So let's, if we can't use one nation's reserve to back an international currency, let's try to bring in other nations' reserve to make the, reserve, the gold reserve that much, much, much larger. But that was already a violation of Bretton Woods, certainly the spirit of Bretton Woods, if not the actual fabric and framework of Bretton Woods, because Bretton Woods was supposed to be fixed gold exchange. And now we hear we have all the major countries, most of them in Europe, working together to try to hold this thing together as it was coming apart. And that's really the point here is that this thing was already starting to come apart. And the formation of the London Gold Pool in November 1961, I always say 1960, I get that date wrong for some reason. November 1961, they formed the London Gold Pool, which was not sort of a warning sign. It was an, sort of an admission, a tacit admission that Bretton Woods had already started to break down. And if Bretton Woods is breaking down and there's these dollars outside the United States, it's a fair question to ask next, what was really going on? What was really taking over where was this reserve currency coming from? And if you, once you start to look at that, what is the actual reserve currency or what is it that's meeting the roles that are required of a reserve currency system? Because it sure couldn't have been paper U.S. dollars printed by the Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve officials noticed this, obviously, the London Gold Pool. They may have not noticed what Midland Bank was doing, the British Banking Association they, know, you know, sure they noticed. Did. They just didn't know what they were saying. I mean, like they would talk during the FOMC discussions about how dollar rates in London, as you pointed out earlier, London comes back to the you know uh, we come back to London a lot, but dollar rates in London would 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 be higher than they would be in New York, and they would say that interest rate differential was one of the reasons for their what they called a current account problem, yes. which was dollars flowing outside the United. again mistaking the cause and effect here, but seeing some of the symptoms. And saying there's a dollar imbalances, dollar imbalance, dollars are flowing back and forth outside the United States. Some of them are coming back in, but not really understanding that this is a currency system that's developing in these shadows. As Paul Einzing said, we don't. The bankers who were doing this didn't want anybody to really know about it because they were making so much money off it. And the reason they were making so much money off it was because that, getting back to Robert Triffin, there was this need for it. A reserve currency was required because the, the global economy was being globalized in a very good and beneficial way. 
economies that were very very different, very separated by geography, separated by language, suddenly they could intermediate together in a common language of the U.S. dollar. They could trade with each other. They could trade financial flows. They become closer politically. All the beneficial stuff from globalization that, that is required of a reserve currency that the Bretton Woods U.S. dollar gold exchange system just could not possibly meet. But this bank-centered, offshore, London-based, largely London-based system really could, and there was a lot of money in those early days for banks to, to undertake that role. You bring us a quote from September 1963 from the FOMC where, indeed, they at first thought that this was a balance of payment issue, and you say that they try to control it with currency controls and hiking interest rates. So in September 1963, they say, hmm, within this sector, there does not seem to have been much change on the short-term account. The rise in U.S. short-term rates has not altered rate differentials in relation to major financial centers abroad. Euro-dollar <laughs> rates have increased virtually as much as U.S. rates. So they thought this was regulation, regu uh, regulation Q. And as you, you say... Said what you see there is that there was demand for dollars such that outside the United States, no matter what the domestic U.S. rate would be, they were willing to pay more outside the U.S. Again, it's a, it's a sign of what's going on here. The demand for dollars outside the U.S. was such that they would pay higher rates just to do that, just to get them. You bring us an example from one of my absolute favorite countries to visit, Italy. Beyond just the great leather goods and food, Jeff, what was happening in the 1960s? Italy was a mess, <laughs> as you could <laughs> probably imagine. Uh, you know, obviously their experience in World War II left the country devastated, uh, you know, political problems, social problems, pretty much everything that led into economic problems. So, that, you know, 1960s roll around, they have a persistent current account deficit, which means more currency coming in that they owe going out. I mean, they have a severe problem, except that in the night, in the, while they had a legitimate merchandise uh, deficit, the problem was some of that was hidden in the statistics because Italian banks were beginning to really access this global reserve to fill in their current account hole, which means local Italian banks that were short of currency after a merchandise trade, there's more, more, more currency going out than in. They decided to fill that gap by going into the euro dollar market and borrowing these dollars. And so they could intermediate essentially Italy's current account deficit through the U.S. dollar, but not just dollars, but U.S. dollar uh, dollars that were based on borrowing in the euro dollar market. I'm going to read an example, but first let's tell people how much it was. It was $150 million, this whole, this current account whole, which doesn't sound like a lot. Everyone's got that in their office drawer. But that was a lot of money, and I bring this up because later we're going to bring up a number that's even bigger that was solved like this, but a $150 million hole, huge. And you say people were betting that the lira would lose value, as they should have, except guess what? The dollar lost value, Jeff, right? And I'm going to read a part here. I, I said confusing. So I'm going to read it out, and then you help us <laughs> understand what's happening. So $150 million, give or take, came in borrowed from euro dollars while $150 million in lira went out to where? Switzerland, mostly, and a few other places. 
Outflows in lira forced the Swiss National Bank to buy up the currency, I'm guessing the lira, lest it cause Swiss private banks further trouble because they had too much of a lousy currency. What to do with the lira then? Sell it for dollars, euro dollars, of course, which pressured the lira and led to the Bank of Italy, their central bank, stepping in to buy it back from Switzerland. You can see why I'm confused a little bit, right? Yeah, there's all these intricate flows, and you can see why people don't want to look at this stuff because they can't make sense of it. It's all it's like a Gordian knot, right? You have all of these transactions going around, but in, in some ways it's kind of simple. It's what we just said at the outset, which was the euro dollar was becoming the very thing the global currency needs to do. It was an intermediating currency between all of these local imbalances. Without the euro dollar market, the lira, lira probably would have crashed at that point. It would have been completely it would have been a currency crisis, which would have been devastating, not just to not just to Italy, but any banks around the world that were exposed to Italy. Instead, everybody was able to intermediate through the euro dollar, essentially throw some of these imbalances and create some of the sort of a shock absorber into the euro dollar system, which, again, that's what a euro that's a reserve currency is supposed to do. And the problem was. The euro dollar at that time wasn't the official reserve currency. It was taking on some of those roles. But what that ended up doing is that it's, it's part of the process. The Swiss National Bank and Bank of France, the Reserve Bank of France in particular, ended up with dollar balances that they didn't really want. They were using the dollar to intermediate these monetary flows, which left them often with lots of dollars. That the, in Switzerland's case, for example, they were statutorily required to convert into U.S. gold reserves. And what they did was as these dollars accumulated on the Swiss National Bank's balance sheet and the law said you have to convert them, well, they decided to do something that, become, that has become familiar to our modern 21st century ears is instead of converting into U.S. gold because they were sympathetic to the Federal Reserve and the U.S. Treasury's plight of losing gold reserves outside the United States, instead of converting into U.S. gold, they swapped it swapped these dollars into the euro dollar market. So in one sense, they were double intermediating through the euro dollar system to, to manage all of these monetary flows that I understand <laughs> completely. They're, they're, they're not easy to intuitively understand how these things work and what they're actually doing. But by and large, what we're saying here is that here we are in the early 60s and the euro dollar was being the almost perfect intermediary for all of these things as the Bretton Woods system was breaking down more and more. Now, the French, French Central Bank, because of politics and other things, they didn't care about that. They just simply converted into U.S. gold reserves. That's why France was the biggest beneficiary of gold flows outside the United States. Whereas other, especially in the, in the post-London gold pool era, you know, the Swiss National Bank, Bundesbank, and some of the other European central banks, and even the Bank of Japan, we're more likely to engage in these kinds of derivative transactions, intermediating through the euro dollar market to try to manage and continue and maintain the illusion of the Bretton Woods system as long as they possibly could. But that's all it was it's throughout the 60s and really the late 50s. Bretton Woods had broken down to become an illusion as this euro dollar system more and became more and more important because it more and more absorbed the roles of the reserve currency. So on paper, the global reserve currency, even since 1971, is the U.S. dollar. But in every way that matters, long before 1971, it's the euro dollar system that is taking on these roles. There's a delightful paragraph in here that uh, 
exudes befuddlement and consternation from the FOMC as they say this should have happened but this is actually what happened with the currency and uh, so I encourage the audience that's to... common in the euro dollar era isn't it? I mean right up until the present day that's kind of that's kind of our thing here if we're really getting down to it I found it, uh, I, f I liked it very much, but then you came in with this description here, which I just absolutely loved. I'm going to read it out. The Swiss National Bank, for its part, informally rejected Fed overtures that perhaps the Swiss might be better served using their own currency to stabilize their own currency. Very funny, Jeff. And the Swiss apparently chirped back and said, meh. Let's exactly. You know, and that's that's. Again, <laughs> I think that's that's the intuitive leap we're asking people to make here, that you would think the Swiss National Bank would be very much focused on managing their own currency, but that, in a national closed system approach, that makes sense, which is what economics teaches us, that every economy and monetary system within that economy, they're all individual islands with very limited linkages between them. Um, that's what DSGE models are built from. The idea that the U.S. is just the U.S. And it has only maybe minor trade links and, mo and monetary flows with other parts of the U.S. or other parts of the world. And so we should look at just Switzerland as just Switzerland. And that's just that's completely not the case, especially when you get into the euro dollar era where these global monetary flows and economic flows, it's really one globalized system. And that's why we have this global reserve currency where the Swiss say, why would we just worry about the franc? we got to worry about dollars and lira and everything else. And the fact that we have this euro dollar system available to us to help us intermediate and you know uh, intermediate as well as as uh, manage our just day to day technicals, you know what we need to do to, to get by in, in, on any given day. Why wouldn't we take advantage of that kind of a system? Because that's what it's for. But to U.S. officials, they're thinking that no, that's our dollar. That's ours. We have to. It's we don't care about you guys. We only care about what what goes on in the United States. And that's really, as you said. It's this kind of disconnect that has plagued them and us ever since this began. And that's really why we're even here talking to right now is because that's that can you know, as hard as it is to believe 60 some odd, you know, almost 60 years later, they still don't have that kind of gap, the intellectual gap filled. They're still looking at this as a closed system, U.S. dollar, and people are still thinking that Bretton Woods ended in August 1971. Exactly. That's our thesis is that it didn't. We've already given the example that there was so many dollars out there that gold had become unmoored. So many dollars that Italy was able to manage a huge current account deficit hole and that the Swiss were doing something with dollars that the Fed was quite annoyed with and troubled by. Now we're going to go even further to Japan and now it's a $200 million hole that again, all this... Surfeit, uh, surefit of dollars outside of America was already taken care of. Uh, let's talk about Japan then, Jeff. So we brought this up a couple of weeks ago, a couple episodes ago. And what is the story here? They needed to do a $200 million transaction, but why? Same reason as Italy. I mean, Japan in the early, you know, that po early post-war era, the yen wasn't completely convertible, nor was it really useful outside of Japan. So Japan had, as many countries around the world today do, they have a dollar short, which just simply means they need to acquire dollars so that they can be on global markets. And at that time, Japan aspired to become, to transform itself into a peaceful industrial powerhouse. 
And in order to do it, they needed the monetary resources, which they acquired in this euro dollar market. Now, you know, as in those early euro dollar years, you might expect it wasn't it didn't go so smoothly all the time. It wasn't a mature system. And so there were there were bumps in the road along the way, not just for Italy or Switzerland or anybody else. The Japanese found themselves in the same year. I think it was 1970, 1963. In fact, these 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 uh, things that we're talking about are actually related. We don't need to get into how they're related, but some of these things are related. And so what was going on in Japan and uh, Italy and Switzerland caused some ripples, let's say, in the euro dollar market, where essentially in the I think it was the summer of 63, the Japanese banks found themselves unable to easily roll over what was then an absolutely enormous $200 million liability. And all that meant was that they had borrowed $200 million in euro dollar market. They were rolling them over short term. And then one day those banks in London said, called them up in Tokyo and said, um, I need either more collateral from you or I need a higher interest rate. But whatever it is, the terms that I gave you yesterday for those $200 million, they're not going to be the same today. I, I perceive you as more risky, whatever it is. You need to do more, which was a problem for the Japanese banks. The rest of your essay is a light review of our episode 93B, where we talked about what we saw in the most recent Treasury International Capital Report about foreigners selling treasuries, the Asian financial crisis. And basically, the point is that Japan was able to secure the money by selling U.S. treasuries, which we Treasury talked bills. about. Right. Oh, I didn't. Okay. And, and so we talk about that in detail in episode 93b. I'm going to read one paragraph from you that I find delightful, and then you summarize any concluding thoughts that you have about this essay that you want the audience to come away with. Quote, the pattern Italy, Switzerland, and Japan all illuminated in the single year, 1963, was how the euro dollar had already attained global reserve status, and that while the U.S. dollar label may have prevailed, the actual and necessary functions were provided by this offshore arrangement of reserveless bank liabilities. It further established and linked the use of foreign reserves, especially U.S. treasuries, to conditions in the euro dollar market. The Bretton Woods monetary order was dead. Is just nobody would officially pronounce it dead for a few more years. Any concluding yeah, thoughts? Yeah, not only, just to expand on what you just said and what we've talked about, what you talked about before, the the, the uh, center of London and all that stuff. You know, it's it's really, in one sense, it's understandable. I know it. it, it there's sort of a you know a, a future arrogance looking back in the past and saying, you know, those idiots of the FMC, why the hell didn't they know what was going on? But it's it, you, you, you can be somewhat sympathetic to their position because they thought, okay, we have this order need arrangement under Bretton Woods. Some 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 things are starting to go wrong, but you know we we think there's self correction mechanisms embedded in the system that should take place, and it gets worse and worse and worse. And you know, human beings being human beings, and, and economists and professionals being what they are, wedded to worldviews, you can understand why they would why they would miss something so monumental and profound as this is because as it's happening, as it's unfolding, it's easy to mis to misinterpret what's going on as, well, it's just a small thing that we'll, we'll fix. And then it got bigger and bigger and bigger, of course. And that's really where the, uh, both our understanding and our interpretation needs to really be centered is that in the early years, yeah, you can understand it, but 
eventually at some point long before 1971 somebody should have alarm bells whatever you know it the light bulb should have gone on somewhere and said hey something else is happening here something else that's really big we should probably incorporate that into not just what we do with monetary policy we should probably tell people about this instead it went the opposite direction as you know stephen goldfeld in 1976's missing money uh, treatise the FOMC saying M1, M2 are obsolete. Those things were never really publicized. Those were never really given to the public so that even today, 50 years later, by and large, I would get, I would say 99.9999% of the people of the sub small subset that actually thinks about this kind of stuff or even knows what Bretton Woods is, they still believe August 1971 is somehow significant. And it's really not. When you realize how and why it's not significant, that's when you really start to understand all of these things that we're talking about, that out-of-date worldview colliding with the realities of the system and the way it actually works. We're not asking too much of our monetary officials to have been clued in about this. I know, for example, that Goldfields Mineral Services was clued in. This is a private company, mining company, and they said something's wrong. In the mid-1960s, they said, you know what? This is off, this isn't working, and we believe that the gold price will become unmoored and freely floating. And uh, they began doing research that uh, they continued for until this year, I believe. Anyways, so private individuals, private companies knew something was wrong and began investigating it. Jeff, another marker on the way to 1971 that should have told you something is desperately wrong was the creation of special drawing rights in 1969, the disbursement of them by the International Monetary Fund. We're gonna talk about that next in part two. The International Monetary Fund just released its biggest ever SDR allocation. What is SDR? Special drawing rights, is it a kind of money? Is the global liquidity crisis solved. We're going to talk about it with Jeff Snyder, the head of global research next. But first, ladies and gentlemen, this episode is sponsored by the Zimbabwean Office Depot print shop found on the corner in Springfield in Maine. In business since February 2007, the Zimbabwean Office Depot print shop can take care of all your needs, flyers, postcards, stickers, business cards, and more. All projects are guaranteed to be done within 24 hours. Custom flyers, business flyers, club flyers, folded postcards, wedding invitations, stickers. No matter how large you order, their specially designed presses can handle it. Each printing press is powered by a Soviet-era MiG-29 jet engine, allowing the Zimbabwean Office Depot print shop to deliver any job anytime. Minimum size order is 1 trillion prints. We now go live to Jeff Snyder, deep in the shadows, but he's got a torch. We're going to talk about special drawing rights because the IMF just released their biggest ever allocation of money. Woo! They must have used the Zimbabwean print shop, right? I mean, that's what it sounds like. They had to, they printed something, right? That's, they're kind of making it sound like liquidity, huge, big. Zimbabwe, that's, those two things come together. Sophistry dressed as reallocation. There's your hint, ladies and gentlemen, sophistry. It was posted at Alhambra Partners website, the blog on August 3rd, 2021. Jeff, I love that word sophistry. What does it mean? Simply means that 
nothing. <laughs> it's, it's your, you're, you're using a bunch of words to... Fancy not, words. Yeah, fancy words that make it sound like you're saying something substantial, but they're all, all, ultimately they're meaningless. That's how I got to where I am, Jeff. I feel like maybe you're... Okay, well, moving on to your actual, your actual article here. This is from the IMF's July 30th, 2021 statement, gleefully announcing its governing bodies has agreed to the general allocation of 650 billion in Zimbabwe. SDRs, <laughs> biggest in history according to existing quotas, the purpose to boost liquidity. Um, what are... What is the IMF? Why did they do it in 1969? What are special drawing rights? And then we'll get into what it means today. As we talked about in our earlier segment of this episode, when we, we talked about the pre-August the pre 1971 breakdown of Bretton Woods, the IMF obviously knew that there was this, this, this problem brewing in the international currency system. And it wasn't something that, you know, the, the idea of a supranational currency wasn't new by 69. I mean, John Maynard Keynes had had uh, raised the issue, and he wasn't the first either, but he had actually raised the issue at Bretton Woods in 44 with his idea for what he called Bancor, which was an international currency. So as the Bretton Woods system had broken down from the 50s and 60s, long before August 1971, the IMF, which was actually created in a very different role at Bretton Woods in 44, obviously said, well, Maybe we should try this Bancor stuff. Maybe we can create a internet supranational currency that isn't tied to any national monetary policy or its reserves, the Triffin's paradox of the time. So let's let's come up with our own international currency. We'll call them special drawing rights and we'll to keep all of the political animals happy that are involved in IMS, we'll apportion them out by quota. And quota is based upon your membership percentage or you want to call it shareholder percentage, whatever. You get more SDRs, more money, more international money, the greater the shareholder you are. Now, earlier I said, I don't remember when, but I said that uh, in 1969 they created and allocated them, but they created them in 1969 and allocated them 1970 to 1972. Today's allocation, get this, so there's a total of 661 billion of these SDRs floating out there. This one that they just did on August 2nd that they approved and is going to be dispersed by the end of this month, 456. I'm not going to do the math. I'm just going to call it two-thirds of all existing SDRs were just creating. That sounds like a lot of money. Zimbabwe! <laughs> to address the long-term global need for reserves. Just you know, very... Mayo, I'm starting to get this funny feeling, though. It, we're yes. talking about hyperinflationary Zimbabwe, but, you know, it's starting to sound a lot like the Federal Reserve and quantitative easing and bank reserves. Are, are we printing money here? What are we, what are we doing here? But yeah, I was, that was what I was going to ask you, is that the direction we were going? And they offer a nice little description. They, they say it's not a currency. It's a unit of account. So, Jeff, are they they're just kind of creating it out of thin air? Is that right? Or did the United States have to give $400 billion to the SDR? No, it is it's simply a ledger entry. But that's so important. So they're making money out of thin air like the Federal Reserve does, like commercial banks do and now the question is this out of thin air money going to make its way 
into the global economy. Jeff, one last little tangent here. There are five currencies in the uh, in the basket: the dollar, the euro, the yuan, the yen, and sterling. I don't know if we mentioned that the SDR is not a currency; it's kind of reference to five different currencies. And in this is important. At the end of 2015, they in, they in, included the Chinese renminbi. And Jeff, it was purely political. And even according to their own standards, they didn't meet it. What are the standards? Currencies included in the SDR basket have to meet two criteria. The export criterion, that you're like one of the top five exporters in the world. Okay, China. And that it's freely usable freely usable money, widely used to make payments for international transactions, and widely traded in principal exchange markets. That's not the Chinese RMB. Okay, Jeff, you don't have to say anything about that. I just wanted to raise that point. No, no it's, it's an important point, yes. The, oh, yeah? I okay. think your larger point is that, you know, getting into the sophistry here, mm. it's not money, it's not economics, small e economics we're talking about, as you're talking about quite relevantly, politics. Mm. Yuan was included not okay. because it meets the monetary standards of the – forget the IMF. It meets any monetary standards of any useful, uh, reasonable uh, definitions anywhere. But that's really – I mean the IMF is not a bank. The IMF is not making loans or making currency based on the economic considerations of its customers. It's acting in a political manner because it is a political institution. It only gets a little more complicated because it's an international political institution, and so it often it has sometimes competing inter competing national interests that it has to try to balance. But we don't care about that. I mean, we do. I, let's, let's be sure We're, we do care about that. But for our our purposes here, we're strictly analyzing the monetary and economic the monetary capacity, and therefore the economic possibilities of what should be or should not be a useful currency. And that's really the issue here. They can say, they can create all the press releases and statements they want. And I think they used the Zimbabwean uh, Office Depot for this too, because the press release was everywhere. And it said, liquidity. We just created a bunch of money. Everybody go home, it's crisis over, everything's fine. And already you're sort of thinking, well, wait a minute. What crisis? Is, wasn't the crisis over last year? Why are we still doing crisis stuff this year? Because I heard, I heard Jay Powell. He was on 60 Minutes last year, and he said he flooded the world with digital dollars, so why are we flooding the world with these new SDRs? I mean, already the, the, the question should be working through your mind and in, in asking you know, right away, what is going on here? What are they really attempting to do? Why are they tying SDRs to this, this nebulous um, nebulous term liquidity. What is really the purpose? The IMF has flooded the world with SDRs five times. Now listen to these dates. 1970, 1972, hmm, 1979, 1981. Not great economic times. And then Jeff, 2009. Yeah, no, a, yeah before you get to the 2000, those four earlier ones, remember what their purpose was. No, because at me. the time during the great inflation, it wasn't that we had a shortage of euro dollars. We had too many. And so the SDR was meant sort of in a half-hearted way to maybe possibly become a competing stable currency, restricted, something more like Bretton Woods had been because there was way, way too many euro dollars at that time because it had that, that early days of the system had gone insane and created all sorts of new forms of money that nobody could check anywhere. 
And so the SDR in those earlier allocations were meant to be not so much for liquidity, but for stability. And so the IMF was acting politically in reaction to the overriding conditions of that era, which were too much euro dollars. Now, as you're going to say next, they're fast forward to 2009, their next allocation was the opposite, right? It was the opposite, but it was also gigantic, Jeff. Because so now like we're not talking about stability. We're now talking about liquidity because there's a shortage of dollars. A gigant- Just to give people a sense, the 1972-1981 allocations, 9.3 billion SDRs and 12.1 billion SDRs, respectively. Then the special allocation in 2009 was the combined total, 21 and a half. And then the general allocation in 2009 161.2 billion SDRs, a flood of money. And Jeff, that's kind of the key point that's of it. your that's article. That's the end of the story, right? That's where our story ends. The, the flood of money at the end of the tail end of the global financial crisis obviously solved all problems and we've never had a monetary problem since. I mean, that was the message that you that we got in 2009 when they, when they, uh, when they did the allocation. They said, look, we just had a global breakdown. It's a monetary breakdown, subprime mortgages, blah, blah, blah. Here is a quarter, the, the equivalent of a quarter trillion in U.S. dollars worth of SDRs being created. We're going to make sure we allocate them to the smallest, poorest countries on the earth so that they have sufficient liquidity that something like this could never possibly happen again. This gigantic, and again, it should sound a lot like quantitative easing and bank reserves because you get the same message in both areas. They're saying, yes, we just had a liquidity crisis. We've just solved it by printing money, except in the one form, QE, they print bank reserves. And in the other, the IMF, SDRs, is it actually useful money or are we just being sophists? Are we just talking politics and hoping people don't ask any more questions and stop looking into these kinds of affairs? And that's really – go ahead, Emil. You briefly, speaking of politics, you briefly raised the point of the big spending, the ARA in 2009, how that also, fiscal, right? So the fiscal United States uh, spending, that didn't make a difference, just like presumably our current Biden-led administration and that fiscal spending is not going to make a difference. Like this SDR allocation isn't going to make a difference like it did in 2009. Jeff, you do raise China in this story and something in 2016. Is there anything that you wanted to bring in with uh, the world's second largest economy and their uh, relationship with SDRs? Well, yeah. I mean, if you think of, if you believe that the, the IMF and this is liquidity and that SDR allocation in 2009 was a huge addition to the global money supply, whatever the hell that is, then you would think that the, the the era beyond 2009, the next couple of years, extending well into the future, would have been completely, utterly free of monetary type events, right? There's sufficient money supply in SDRs or bank reserves or anything else. Yet the history of that era is exact opposite. In fact, we've had one constant dollar problem after another, and I don't hear the word, the letters SDR in any of these things. Nobody is appealing to SDRs to to, to uh, plug their euro dollar holes. What are they doing? Like the Japanese in 1963, they're selling treasuries because they have a euro dollar problem. SDRs don't appear to be very useful, and that really really 
kind of came to a head in a very big way with the Chinese, especially beginning in 2012, 2013, 2014, moving forward into 2015 and 2016, where, yes, the yuan is now convertible, but that doesn't change the fact that they actually have the biggest, the world's biggest dollar problem because there is a dollar problem, and it has no, it doesn't make a bit of difference that there was this massive SDR allocation in 2009 because SDRs are not useful money. Jeff, any other final concluding thoughts? Otherwise, we'll move on to part three. That's the concluding thoughts is they make a big deal out of the big numbers. They make a big deal out of saying this is going to help those that are hardest hit, and in doing so, Again, as I said, this should this should raise in your mind, I've heard this before. I heard this with quantitative easing in bank reserves. And it was these two things sound the same because they essentially are the same. It's sophistry disguised as something it's something else. It's it's actually sophistry disguising what these things really are and the, what they really are or what they really are not is effective and useful money. In part three, we're going to discuss some bad news for my fellow American citizens regarding their income. It turns out that you did not earn as much money as you thought you did. We're going to talk about it next. Dear America, did you know that you made less money than you thought you did? We're going to talk about a benchmark revision. It's a sad story, but we're going to talk about it next with Jeff Snyder, the head of global research. And this episode is sponsored by social media. You can find Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Snyder with an I underscore AIP also with an I. You can find me on Twitter at Emil Kalinowski also two eyes. Jeff, I'm not going to make any funny jokes because this is a sad one. This is a sad one. We're going to talk about something that you never hear about in the mainstream media. That's how I should have started the show is by telling people we're going to talk about something you don't hear about in the mainstream media that is extremely important. It's benchmark revisions. It's about going back in time and saying, you know what? It was actually much worse than we thought it was. But moving on. So, Jeff, the hey, article. Yeah, me, yeah go ahead. No, I was just going to say it. it, it, it really, to me, it's one of my biggest pet peeves is because you're exactly right. An economic number like today, the payroll number, will come out and everybody will say, this is, this is the economy. This is what it is. They don't realize that what's, what you're actually being told is this is a limited snapshot of what whatever government agency thinks is going on today to a reasonable degree of accuracy. And that term I just used, reasonable degree of accuracy, is a term of art. And there's a lot of looseness in it that you don't realize is there. And so... Yeah, the number comes out today and then it's quickly forgotten and we never go back and, and, and think about, well, how, how close were they? Because they're just giving us sort of a range of, well, we think the economy could be doing this, but it could also be this. That's really what these high-frequency data accounts are saying. So we, that would, we need to go back and check to see how close we actually were, except nobody ever does that. I mean, the, the, obviously the statisticians do that because they do that all the time. But as far as the media goes, once a number comes out, that's the number that gets printed in, mem in people's memory and it never changes. When in fact we've seen, especially since 2012, these benchmark data revisions sometimes are very substantial to the point that they really do alter your picture of what happened in economic history. And this is one that we're gonna talk about here. It doesn't just apply to economic history, it applies to 
this year economic history in a way, frankly, I don't think I remember ever seeing before. And it's a really serious one. That's right. Uh, I circled the number of exclamatory adjectives here that you used in this report, which is unusual. Unlike you, you're really trying to drive this point home. And hopefully I can help do that on the show. Jeff, if people want to read the article, it's called Inflation Estimates, PCE, Totally Overshadowed by Benchmark Income Revisions and the Deflationary Implications of Them. So if the audience is out there and they heard this da- about this data release, it's almost certain, 99% chance that it was just about the PCE number and not about the benchmark revisions. But it was very big. And you said... Well, yeah, let's, the PCE number we're referring to is the PC deflated, the inflation numbers, which as I'm, I'm sure everybody is aware right now, they're extremely, they're elevated in a way. It's, the core PCE is the highest it's been in 30 years, which I'm sure everybody has heard. But I'm also I'm equally sure that almost nobody has seen the rest of the data, including the revisions that we're going to talk about. And as I said in the title, what I was getting at is that in down the road, the more important part of the data that was released at this time, the personal spending and income data, ours is this income data, not the deflator data. So we're going to talk about real personal income, excluding transfer receipts. And why do we want to talk about exclude transfer receipts? What are we driving the core of? What are we looking at? We're looking at personal income, and that's including wages and salaries and earned income, as well as proprietor income and income from business, you know, profits. What we're really looking for is what is the private economy underlying fundamental in terms of income, income generation and distribution. We don't care about Uncle Sam throwing trillions in, in, in the transfers and stipends and whatnot, because that's non-economic factors that don't really get in, don't really tell us much about the private economy's health or ill health. So we want to use real personal income excluding transfers. And when I, I say we, I'm just talking about us, you and me, Emil, the NBER, for example, which we talked about in, a, in just a recent episode, when they get together to decide on a business cycle, they look at basically a couple different data points, GDP, the unemployment rate. They also use this one. This is an important data point that you know, mainstream economists use to get a good sense or at least a somewhat reasonable sense of the private economy underlying income fundamentals. And, and importantly, it's real. So it's inflation adjusted. Exactly. So it's, yeah, real, real stuff, real income, what people are earning. Jeff, I wonder if the NBER, which had just determined that uh, the recession had ended, I wonder what they would have said because they were looking, now I've pulled up a graph, they were looking at the black dashed line. I wonder what, if there would have been a pause, if there would have been a hitch in their step, if they had seen these new numbers. Now, Jeff, hold on to your seat, ladies and gentlemen, but this benchmark revision didn't go back a few years. It went all the way back to 1959. The whole thing was revised. And Jeff, did we see big changes all the way up and down, all the way throughout? Or when did we start seeing a, 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 a revision and which direction? Was it a revision upward, glory, hallelujah? When did this and what direction? Well, I think, you know, let's, let's take a step back again. And, and okay. what are we talking about with revisions? You know, high frequency data is monthly data or even quarterly data where, you know, they, 
the government or whatever agency, whatever you could, it doesn't have to be the government. It could be you know like ADP doing a private survey. They have a manageable sample size that they can they can get through in a in a in a month, so that they when the monthly uh, the end of the month comes up, they can have an estimate ready. And so by by just that necessity of time, the sample size has to be smaller than what they would consider ideal. That's why it's less accurate when they release these numbers. What they're really telling you isn't, you know, this is the number of payrolls or this isn't the this is the number of of actual income produced by the economy. What they're saying is we believe there's a range in which this 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 number uh, represents sort of an average, and then. When they have time at the end of the year or in an annual process and sometimes in a multi-biannual or multi-annual process like the, the, the big economic survey, which comes around every five years, they, took, they take an enormous sample size and they say, okay, we can't do this on a high-frequency basis, but we'll look at a much bigger sample size on an annual basis at least, and we'll check our work. We'll see how accurate those high-frequency, low-sample data estimates were. And a lot, a lot of times they... They're, they really match up pretty well. There's always a little bit of wiggle room here and there, but as we've saw, we've talked about before, there are certain periods where that doesn't work out as well. Where they, when they get to the larger samples, these annual benchmark revisions, and they go back and look at the high frequency data, and they're whoa, we way overestimated the short run stuff. And it turns out when we look at a more comprehensive sample across the economy. It was a lot less economy than there was. And getting back to answer your question that you just asked, Emil, it was right around 2016 where we see these latest benchmarks start to show up. And not it shows up in the bad way, which means that you know, during globally synchronized growth, or what we call reflation number three, in terms of real personal income, excluding transfer receipts, there wasn't as much income as we thought there was. It isn't a huge downward revision, but it's a substantial, significant downward revision where you start to think, okay, it wasn't all that great to begin with, and now it's even a little bit more, it's even a little bit less. So that kind of fits with the picture that the bond market was sending at the time when everybody was convinced of inflation, growth, everything's great. The bond market was saying, I'm not looking at data, I'm looking at the real economy, and it's, it's probably not as good as people think. And then here we are years later, they come along the BEA and says, yeah, you know what? It wasn't as good as we thought it was. There's a little. It's it's not a huge difference, but it takes a little bit off that 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 says, yeah, it wasn't as good as we thought it was. Jeff, you know it wasn't good as they thought it was, because the third euro dollar crisis had erupted in off the coast of uh, China, and it was damaging terribly emerging markets, especially China, and we knew that 2015 was. A weak year, you call it a near recession. Jeff, it's no coincidence in my mind that out of left field, an avowed socialist, Bernie Sanders, and an orange man, President, eventual President Trump, Donald Trump, all of a sudden came to the fore. Both of these are very odd, very strange birds you would not see in a normal situation. And, and here in your article, you say that near recession hardly anyone knew was going on. Hardly anyone in charge or in the academic sphere or in the ec professional economics, but you know who did know real people. Something was wrong. We see it in these in this data, yeah. just this small little data set plus so many others. Okay, 2015, 2016, but it gets worse. Globally synchronized growth, 17, 18. I'm going to pull up this chart. We're starting to fall way off what we thought was happening in this latest revision. And going up to even more recent times. 
Yeah, and I think that's where we want to focus now is, is the latest revisions. If you look at that dashed line, that was what everybody thought this this was going to be, or this that's what everybody thought income was this year. And it wasn't until last month's numbers that we said, oh, wait a minute here. Where did all that income go? You know, we had the line going up in the right direction. It wasn't going up far and fast enough, but at least it was going up in the right direction. And now the BEA comes along and says, sorry, that income never happened. The economy that we thought was at least moving in the right direction toward recovery, here we are in real private income. You know, again, what we really want to see, the health of the real economy. And they're saying, it's kind of, not only are we below February of 2020, I think it's January of 2020, which was the prior peak, we're not really moving that far upward either. You know, that little dip there was the, you know, January, we had a, almost a recession there. And we had the quote unquote cold winter of February blanketing Texas and all that stuff. And then we had a small rebound from it, not nearly as robust and as, as, as immense as previously thought. And that's really, that's where we're getting to in terms of how are we looking at the future? The future at that, that what we thought last month, that, that, that uh, dash black line, is so much better, even though it's still not recovery. It's so much closer to one than the thick red line of where we where we believe we are right now. And Jeff and dear audience, if it isn't already just clear on this graph, that is a big difference. If it wasn't clear enough already, here are just some of the words I had to circle in your in your blog post. Totally big, big, oh boy, very important, huge, oh boy truly stunning quote this might be one of the biggest downward revisions i've ever observed and jeff we had already talked about downward revisions not too long ago in industrial production and retail sales and now in the so the real personal stuff the important stuff income real income uh it's yeah. flat it's been flat flat since october i mean it's not just a month or two we're we're kind of moving sideways. Which sideways is recession. I'm, I'm, that's that's you know it's at least near recession if you look at the numbers from both 2012 and more so 2015 2016. You'll see the same thing where you have sideways to slightly lower, which is at at at, at least a near recession. That's income of a near recession. Now we don't feel it because of the other stuff that's going on, the Uncle Sam's helicopters and transfer payments, but in the private economy we're supposed to be seeing recovery. Now, again, as I said, the previous benchmarks that, that dashed black line, that, was, that wasn't good enough either, but it was at least recovery-like. And you could see it moving in the right direction. This other is more recession-like. And that's completely different interpretation and leads you into a completely different set of probabilities over the near-term near future as well as beyond. And you start thinking about this in terms of bond yields, for example, it kind of makes sense where you think, okay, reflationary bond yields in January and February, the market's starting to think, well, maybe maybe income is like the dashed line. But then at some point, the bond market realizing what's going on in the real economy, regardless of whether or not it gets captured in these economic statistics, that it wasn't acting that way. Real income, real economy, real labor market, it wasn't, it wasn't as robust as, we, as was being portrayed. And so what the BEA is doing is coming back and saying, yeah, that's that's true. That's accurate. What the bond market has been saying about this view of the real economy, we see it, too, in this immediate revision. 
Thankfully, our monetary authorities pay attention to the bond market and take their clues and guidance from this complex system. Jeff, the second half of your article, uh, just a summary, and we'll take it, you know, we'll end the show. Just a summary, basically, that what you're seeing in these income figures suggests to you that the PCE numbers of deflator, inflation, will be transitory because you need income growth, wage growth, right? Yeah, Is, did I summarize that chart, it? That chart with the revisions, I think we can translate into the inflation numbers. As we now know with the, the recent benchmarks, that thick red line that's going sideways, that's transitory inflation. And so what's driving the PC deflator currently is what's not in the red line. And I don't mean the dashed line either, the black line. I'm talking about the transfer payments from Uncle Sam. And so once the transfer payments from Uncle Sam start to fade away here, there you go. Perfect example. It's the orange line where you see the PCE deflator and the CPI, but over time, it's the red line that will ultimately determine the longer run inflation condition, inflationary condition or potential. And that sideways red line is not inflationary in any sense of the word. Okay. Thank you, Jeff. And that's it for me. I got to work on my, I, I think I've been doing better on my intros. Uh, one day I'll do work on the outros. How about you? Why don't you outro the show? Which... <laughs> I'll do my outro, which is yes, I'm going to send it back to you to, to, to do a, a closing remark. Dear audience, we'll be back again next week. That's terrible, terrible. All right, well, let me spend a couple of minutes working on it, and then I'll get back to an outro. All right, Jeff, great show. I'll talk to you again next week. Yeah, thanks, Emil.